Okay, we'll go ahead in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. If you remember from the uh, past couple of weeks, we've been looking at some of the parts of the book of Daniel. And last week we looked at Daniel chapter 3, and we looked at um, the three youth in the fiery furnace. And the week before that, we talked about uh, Daniel chapter 2, and we talked about the king's dream, King Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And one of the things... Um, that we want to emphasize is this is this series or this these stories in the book of Daniel are about how to be faithful in a foreign land. So today we're going to look actually at Daniel chapter seven, and we're going to look at um, somebody's very bad or very strange dream. So if you have your Bibles and you can look at Daniel chapter seven, you can follow along. I'm sure uh, you guys have probably had some strange dreams or weird dreams before, uh, and you probably would like look at it and say, "Man, what does what does that mean?" Or what is that? You know. I don't understand my dream. So Daniel, actually, in Daniel chapter 7, had a very strange dream, and we're going to explore uh, his dream. Remember, just a little bit of, uh, to, just in case so we can get everybody on the same page, as we go through the book of Daniel, the main idea in the book of Daniel is that there are a group of Israelites who are exiled uh, to Babylon, uh, and the whole point of the book is to explore what does it mean to be faithful to God in a place where you are a minority. To be faithful to God when the whole culture is sort of going against you and how to struggle to maintain faithfulness and struggle to maintain hope, right? Because the people were away from their land and away from the things that uh, they, they were like, uh, that they were doing, the things that they were used to doing, the way they were used to worshiping. So what does it mean to maintain hope? And so it's... Uh, what we're look at, we're gonna look at Daniel chapter seven. And Daniel chapter seven is a big transition in uh, the book of Daniel. Uh, we talked about, like I said, chapters two and three before. And uh, we can talk about, I wanna say briefly, uh, what happened in some of the chapters that we didn't talk about, four and five and six. Uh, first, you know that like the book of Daniel is mostly about Daniel and his three friends, right? Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. And, and Daniel himself, how they got recruited to serve in Babylon, how they got recruited to work in the government, and they took Babylonian names, and they spoke the Babylonian language, Aramaic, and they find themselves sort of in these compromising situations. In chapter one, there was a compromising situation about food, right? How they couldn't eat the right food, they weren't supposed to eat the food of the king because that was against uh, Jewish tradition. And chapter two was about the dream of the statue and the four different types of metals, and how everybody had to worship the statue. And then chapter three is the, the, the men in the fiery furnace. After that, we have two stories about two kings uh, of Babylon, a father and a son, and they're both really prideful. One is King Nebuchadnezzar, and you remember he was prideful. You remember we talked about that in some of the, the verses in the chapters that we read before. And so God humiliated him. And what happened actually in Daniel chapter four is King Nebuchadnezzar himself sort of lost his mind and turned into a beast, turned into a caveman, and he started acting like an animal. And he ate grass, and he had long claws, and he became like a beast. And he realizes his place before God, and becomes humbled before God, and he humbles himself, and his humanity is sort of restored to him and becomes a man again once he submits himself to God's kingdom. And you contrast that with his son. His son in chapter five, he sees this sort of handwriting on the wall, and he's also arrogant in front of God, and he didn't humble himself, and he dies that night. He's actually murdered with a knife in his back. And chapter six, then, is very similar to chapter three. Chapter three, if you remember, was about the three youth. They were supposed to worship the statue, and they didn't, so then Nebuchadnezzar threw them in the furnace. Chapter six is also, there was a King Darius, the king of uh, Persia, and he was supposed to, they, they were supposed to worship him, and somebody told uh, the king that Daniel wasn't worshiping, so he threw them into the lion's den. 
Okay, so that's so far what's happening in the book of Daniel. And so it becomes, uh, he goes thrones in the light and then because they're wondering, you know, is he going to worship or is he not? And there's this struggle to maintain, like I said, their faithfulness. They struggle to maintain their faithfulness. And sort of how they get, you can see that the story or the book is trying to teach us how it can be tiring to be constantly going against the grain, right? Every chapter seems like there's a new problem of the Babylonians want us to do this, but we insist we have to do that. And the Babylonians want us to do this, but we have to insist to do that. Okay, so this is where Daniel chapter 7 uh, picks up. It's another d- dream, which is sort of similar to the dream uh, in, in chapter 2. But this time it's Daniel has the dream. Remember chapter, Daniel chapter 2 who had the dream, King Nebuchadnezzar. This uh, dream is Daniel has the dream. So we're going to start reading. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head while on his bed. Then he wrote down the dream, telling the main facts. Daniel spoke saying, I saw in my vision by night and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea and four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I watched till its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man and a man's heart was given to it. And suddenly another beast, a second like a bear, it was raised up from one side, had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth and they said thus to it, arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked and there was another, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it. It had ten horns. I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up from among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking pompous words. So I know you might think you have strange dreams, but this is definitely a very strange dream. Okay, so we'll look at the dream a little bit. First of all, I need to understand, in the Bible, dreams are sort of a a, a theme or a motif that runs throughout the entire Bible, right? Having dreams or having symbolic dreams. Think about Pharaoh's dreams, for example, in the book of Genesis, about the, the wheat and about the cows that were sick and the cows that were full. So we're used to, as readers of the Bible, and the Old Testament readers of this chapter would have been used to hearing about somebody having a dream. And the dreams often feature animals and symbols. And so it's going to play itself out. What does it mean? First of all, for Daniel and for the readers, the early readers of the book of Daniel, they would not be as weirded out as maybe as we are by this dream. We look at this dream and we're like, this is, doesn't make any sense to us. But their minds are filled with biblical imagination. They're used to the way that Daniel is describing his dream. So for anybody who read through the books of the prophets, like the book of Daniel or some of the other books of the prophets, these images of a powerful beast destroying and trampling, like there would have been something I heard of before, something familiar that would be described before. Look at chapter 5 of Isaiah. He says, He will lift up a banner to the nations from afar and will whistle to them from the end of the earth. Surely they will come with speed swiftly. They'll be roaring like a lion. They will roar like young lions. Yes, they will roar. They will hold a prey. They will carry it away safely and no one will deliver. Okay, so we can see that the prophets use this sort of imagery and this sort of symbolism to talk about foreign countries, foreign lands, all this kind of stuff. So when Isaiah is depicting Babylon coming and it began, this is about, this is a prophecy by the way about Babylon, the same Babylon that we're talking about in the book of Daniel. So when Isaiah depicts Babylon coming and besieging and attacking Jerusalem and taking the people in exile, 
he paints this image of a lion coming out of the bushes, roaring, takes them and sort of you can envision somebody dragging them out against their force. And I can show you a million other passages in the prophets where you can see arrogant nations uh, portrayed as animals uh, and, and ravaging people and the same sort of wild animal imagery. So for Daniel's dream, the first beast he saw was what? A lion, right? But he didn't just see a lion, right? There's a lion, there's a bear, there's this sort of leopard thing that has wings. And actually the fourth beast is not even described enough to say what kind of animal it is. It is not described by, like in any way. It's not described enough for us to say it's an animal. He's just saying it has scales and it has horns and it has, but he doesn't really say kind of what the animal is. Okay, but when he says horns, what are we thinking about? We're not thinking about horns like a trumpet, right? We're thinking horns like horns on a head, horns like an ox, right? Animal horns. And this is a very, very important biblical image of horns. Because what do horns symbolize in the Bible? Horns symbolize a symbol of? Huh? No. Power. Power, a symbol of power, a symbol of strength. Okay, horns are a symbol of power and a symbol of strength. Look at this uh, example in Psalm 75. I said to the boastful, do not deal boastfully, and to the wicked, do not lift up the horn. Do not lift up your horn on high, do not speak with a stiff neck. Don't be sort of like haughty. And, and, and what am I gonna do to the people who do that? If you look at the rest of the, the, the verse in the Psalm, all the horns of the wicked I will also cut off, but the horns of the righteous shall be exalted. So what is God going to do to the horns of the people who exalt themselves, who deal boastfully? He's going to cut them off and he's going to exalt the horns of the righteous, okay? So we see these Old Testament passages talking about horns uh, meaning to be powerful. So Daniel grew up on these poems and these prophets, so it's normal for him to have a dream that this describing in this sort of way, okay? Some of us we'll think to ourselves, okay, I see this dream, but I'm, I'm coming to church here in 2019, and what does this have to do with me at all? What does this have to do with me at all? And I want, I hope by the end of the, 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 the talk, you can understand that this dream has everything to do with our lives. And to be a follower of our Lord Jesus Christ is to read the scriptures as part of sort of a family history. And to see that Daniel's story is the same as our story because it's the same as Christ's story. We're gonna see in a second that this chapter that we're reading here is one of the most important chapters, not only to us, but to our Lord Jesus Christ. He quoted from this many, many times. And the title by which our Lord Jesus Christ called himself most comes from this chapter right here. So we'll read the rest of the, we'll, we'll read the, rest of the dream. He says, I watched till thrones were put in place and the Ancient of Days was seated. Here I found an icon of uh, the Ancient of Days described in the book of Daniel. I watched the, till thrones were put in place and the Ancient of Days were seated. His garment was white as snow and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. You can imagine the imagery. It's God on a, on a throne that has wheels and fire. It's very... Uh, a strange image. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. So Daniel, the book of Daniel is now saying in the dream a very powerful scene. God is appearing in the midst of the four beasts and God comes as king of history. The ancient of days comes as a judge. The court was seated and the books were opened. He's going to bring justice. And so this king is coming into the court. The books are open. 
He's going to declare some people innocent, some people guilty. He's going to sentence the wicked. And we'll continue. He says, I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the cloud of heavens, he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. So Daniel sees all of a sudden in his dream that there is a human person, a son of man. And what happens to this son of man? He comes with the clouds of heavens. And where is he going? To approach the Ancient of Days. To approach God. And he was led into the presence of God. And this person was given authority and glory and power. And all the nations, all the peoples of every language gathered and worshipped him. And they had his dominion was an everlasting dominion that was not going to pass away and his kingdom was one that was going to be never destroyed. This is the dream. So we have this strange sort of train of four different beasts culminating in this huge beast with this horn that is speaking defiantly and sets himself again against God and God comes as king of history as ancient of days to bring sentence and judges the beasts and this human one, this son of man, is among the people who have been trampled and destroyed by these beasts. And he approaches God and sits down to rule over God's kingdom, beside God. And all the nations worship, and this human one is worshipped, and the kingdom lasts forever. And, the, and, and Daniel continues in chapter 7. I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit within my body, and the visions of my head troubled me. I came near to the one of those who stood by and asked him the truth of all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. Those great beasts which are four are four kings which arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. So now you're all discovering that Right now, it's, not, it's no surprise to you if you've been reading through the prophets or if you've read through biblical poetry before, you already know that one of the most common ways to describe kings and kingdoms is sort of to represent by these beasts. So then the question is something different about this dream. Who is this human one? Who is the son of man? What does the son of man represent? Obviously, this is a symbol as well. And the vision, he says, four kings are going to rise up from the earth, but the, the holy people of the Most High, they will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. So the four beasts are four kings and kingdoms. And obviously the last beast with the horns will be a especially bad kingdom. And then that beast is going to come and be trampling and crushing and devouring people. And we discover that one of the people that's trampling the Son of Man or is, is trampled is, is the Son of Man and God comes as king and judge and exalts and vindicates and rescues the son of man. And he sentenced the beast to destruction. Who do we discover that the son of man is a symbol for? Verse 18 says, verse 18 tells us, 
But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. Now, if you ever went to Sunday school or you have like read this chapter before, you may have like alarms going in your head. You say, no, Abuna, this is not about nations or kingdoms. This is about Christ. It's a prophecy about Christ. Right? Just hang with me for a minute and we'll get there. It is about Christ. God's holy people, God's holy people have been trampled and persecuted by the beast. But God's going to sentence this beast of destruction and exalt his holy people to sit at the right hand and to rule the world. Now, think hard about a book in the Bible that tells the story of God's holy people who have been trampled and are being persecuted by a beast. How about the chapters of the book of Daniel? The events we talked about in chapters 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5 about God's holy people being trampled and devoured by the beast. Can you think of a story when God's faithful person or people was literally thrown to the beasts? Daniel chapter 6. So this imagery is, is giving this dream, he's looking at this dream, Daniel and his friends are a narrative example of what God's people have been going through throughout their whole history and especially during exile in Babylon. They're living as a persecuted minority. And Daniel is sitting there thinking what before he had this dream? How long is this going to go on for? How long are we going to be exiled? How long are we going to be far from God? How many beasts are going to come and trample us? And the dream gives him comfort, gives him hope. There's coming a day where justice is going to come where God is going to destroy the beast and will rescue and vindicate his holy people. And they're going to share in his rule over the world. And that's what his, this dream is about to Daniel. That's what this dream is about to Daniel. So, but Daniel is still kind of weirded out by the dream. And he's looking at the horn. So we'll see what goes next in the chapter. He says in verse 19, Then I wish to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, with its teeth and iron, its nails of bronze, which devoured broken pieces, and trampled the residue with its feet, and the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn which came up before the which three fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth, which spoke pompous words, whose appearance was greater than his fellows. I was watching, and the same horn was making war against the saints, prevailing against him until the Ancient of Days came and a judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High and the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. Thus he said, the fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on earth which shall be different from all other kingdoms and shall devour the whole earth, trample it and break it in pieces. The ten horns are ten kings who shall arise from this kingdom and another shall rise after them. He shall be different from the first ones and shall subdue three kings. He shall speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High, and shall intend to change times and law. Then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time, and times and half a time. But the court shall be seated, and they shall take away his dominion to consume and destroy it forever. Then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions shall serve and obey him. This is the end of the count. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly troubled me and my countenance changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. So there it is. This is the entire dream and the explanation of the dream according to Daniel. This is God's holy people who are a persecuted minority and they're sitting there in Babylon wondering, how long is this 
super huge mega death beast with all the horns going to trample over us. How long is this king going to be able to destroy our world? How long will these beasts have their rule and their run of the earth? And Daniel is assured in this dream, it will not be forever. Those who are going to be trampled by the beast will be saved. God is aware and he knows. And there's a set time when he's going to come and bring justice and rescue his holy people and sentence the beast to destruction. If you're Daniel, this is a strange dream, but it's good news to you. But what I think is the most significant thing in reading and trying to understand this chapter as a Christian, okay, from looking at it as a Christian, and figuring out how it refers to things and predicts things and so on, that the fact that we know that it's important to us to understand that to our Lord Jesus Christ, this was a really, really, really important chapter. Here's a good fact that I can, uh, you guys can impress your friends that, you know, if you're hanging out together on a Friday night, you want to impress your friends with biblical knowledge. What is one of the titles that we, uh, that we attribute to Christ um, or to our Lord Jesus is, is the word Messiah, right? Or the word Christ. And we talk about it a lot. We even say Jesus Christ. But something interesting that you may have not known is that our Lord Jesus Christ never actually, although he accepted the title, when people told him, called him, you are the Christ, he did not say no. He never said to himself, I am Christ. He never said, I am Christ. He didn't refer to himself as Christ. He never himself referred to himself as the Messiah. Jesus called himself by a different title. What did he call himself by? What did he say? The Son of Man. The Son of Man. Why did he do that? Why did he choose this title for himself? Where did he get this title to, to refer to himself from? Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. So why did Jesus choose the strange title to describe himself throughout his mission, throughout his ministry? Why did he do that? I want to show you one example of when our Lord Jesus Christ used this term, the Son of Man, to refer to himself. This is when our Lord Jesus Christ was uh, arrested in the Gospel of St. Matthew. I believe this is chapter 26. And he's arrested and he's taken in front of the high priest. Okay? And the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under, earth by the under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. So he said, are you the Messiah? He said, are you the Messiah? He said to him, it is as you said. He's not denying this. He said, nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes saying, he's broken, spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have witnesses? Look, you have heard his blasphemy. Pause for a second. Just pause for a second and stay with me. If any of you are familiar with Star Wars, okay? If you're a Star Wars fan, just pause with me for a second. If I go to a Star Wars convention dressed like this, I go to a Star Wars convention dressed like this, okay? And I go and I say to you at the Star Wars convention, I am your father, right? Who am I saying that I am? If I say I am your father, it's understood if you know Star Wars that I'm saying that I am Darth Vader. And if I, and if I say, if I say, if I say, I am your father to you at a Star Wars convention, 
Who am I saying that you are? Luke. I'm saying you're Luke. Do I have to explain that to you if I'm sitting at a Star Wars convention and all of you are Star Wars nerds and you know everything about Star Wars? Do I have to explain that to you? No. If I just, if I dress like this and I say, I am your father, you know that I'm being Darth Vader and you're being Luke, right? I don't need to say anything, okay? Where is our Lord Jesus Christ when he's doing this? He's in a room full of Bible nerds, right? Bible fanatics, okay? They have the scriptures memorized. And he stands before the leaders of Israel who are about to execute a man on false charges for going around leading a movement. And all he did in his movement was say that God is really the king. And so he heals and he's preaching a new kingdom. So he heals the sick, preaches good news to the poor. And he's inviting them and celebrating God's new kingdom that he's creating around himself. And for this, they're going to execute him. So our Lord Jesus Christ stands before these leaders and he says that the moment that you condemn me is the moment that the Son of Man is vindicated and enthroned before God. The moment that the Son of Man that you condemn me is the moment that the Son of Man is vindicated and enthroned before God. Do you get it? What, is our, what role is our Lord Jesus Christ putting himself in by saying these words? Hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Who is he saying he is? The Son of Man from Daniel 7. The Son of Man from the dream in chapter 7. And then he's saying, I am the fulfillment, the true representative of God's holy people for being faithful to the God of Israel. It's despite persecution, despite threats of violence, he's painting himself as that character by saying these words. So if he's painting himself as this character by saying his words, who is Caiaphas? Who is the high priest? No. Put him in, he's putting himself as the son of man in Daniel chapter 7. Who is, the, who, is the, who is Caiaphas? Remember when I said, if I say, I am your father, then I know I'm saying I'm Darth Vader. That means you're Luke. If I say, that you are going to see the Son of Man coming in the clouds. Who is Caiaphas? He's the high priest. Of what institution? The temple. In what city? Jerusalem. He's, Caiaphas, he's saying, you are the beast. You are the beast. I'm the Son of Man, you are the beast. He's saying it loud and clear. I know for us it's not loud and clear because maybe we're not, we could be Star Wars nerds, but maybe we're not Bible nerds and we don't get it right away. But he's saying loud and clear, you are the super mega horned beast. That's you. And I'm the son of man. Look how angry he gets. The priest tore his clothes and he spoke in blasphemy. In our Lord Jesus Christ's mind, the beast doesn't refer to just the truths that were there for Daniel. It doesn't refer to just something that is happening for Daniel and maybe something that's happening at the end of days. The beast is sort of like, a, uh, like clothing that you can put on. It's something that humans and human kingdoms can become. It's what we call like in the Bible, like a type. In our Lord Jesus Christ's mind, Daniel 7 is not just a single reference to a single event. It's not just talking about Israel being freed from Babylon. He's also talking about himself. And it's also talking about even something else besides that. He's talking about the way that 
all of us, at all times that, you know, like if we go back to when we talked a couple day, uh, a couple weeks ago about how the Bible, starting in pages one and two of the Bible where God installed his images as ruling over the world, and but they decided they weren't gonna rule the world his way, they wanted to rule the world their own way, so they rejected God and they rejected God's vision and definition of good and evil, and they wanted to find good and evil for themselves, and so they declared themselves to become God, and the irony is that when human beings exalt themselves to the highest place of pride, and when they make their desires and their impulses and their appetites ultimate and divine, and they give their allegiance and their lives to them, from the biblical point of view, human beings become beasts. They become animals. It happens on an individual level in Daniel chapter 4 with Nebuchadnezzar and it happens on a corporate level when you're talking about the people of Israel when they were going against Christ human beings can become so distorted that you really can't even call them human anymore all you can call them is beasts think about that think about the relationship between humans and beasts what makes humans different from beasts Wild, an wild animals are driven by what? Instinct, right? Instinct. You don't have to tell a, a lion to go hunt. You don't have to tell it to go find a mate. It just does it. You don't have to tell it to raise its children. It does, it's wired for that, it just does it. It's instinct. And if you face the mountain lion in the wilderness, you know, good luck talking it out of eating you. You can't have a conversation with it to convince him, you know, maybe I shouldn't, you shouldn't eat me. Right? Because it's driven by impulse. And there's something about humans. We've developed sort of a thing called consciousness and a moral awareness. And from the Bible's point of view, human beings, we share a lot of commonalities with animals, share a lot of commonalities with beasts. Nobody has to tell us to eat. Nobody has to tell us to reproduce. Those things are impulses within human beings. But at the same time, from a biblical perspective, Human beings have this really unique ability to overcome their beastly impulse. In fact, you know, I think most of us would describe a mature human being as someone who has self-control, control over their impulses, and can actually override their impulses and their instincts and to live a life that is for others, not just for themselves. Live a life that benefits not just themselves, but not, and maybe not just their appetites, not just their desires, but can benefit other people. And might actually be someone I, I can forego things that I want, things that I have an impulse to do, so that I can be a help for others to flourish. This is the Bible's vision of what human beings are. We share a lot with animals, and human beings very quickly and easily become beasts, but we are called to so much more. Called to so much more. We know that we're more than just our appetites. We know that we're more than just our sexual drives. We know that from the Bible, that from the Bible's point of view, every human has this war going on within themselves. Is it going to become this mature human being that God called? Or is this human going to reduce itself back to the level of a beast? From the book of Daniel chapter seven's point of view, every human kingdom Every human kingdom eventually becomes beastly. Every human kingdom becomes beastly. When our Lord Jesus Christ looked 
at the high priest of Israel and he looks at the holy people of God who were supposed to be called out of the nations and called to become truly human and he looks at the high priest of Israel and their government and their temple as they persecute and are about to murder our Lord Jesus Christ for healing people and preaching good news what does he call them all? What does he call them all? He calls them beasts. He calls them beasts. Our Lord Jesus Christ is here. If I, he puts himself in the book of, da of Daniel chapter 7, he's here to conquer the beasts. And what this vision, what Daniel's dream is about, is about how God is going to judge and destroy the beast and exalt the Son of Man to share in his rule over the world. And our Lord Jesus Christ is saying that the story of Daniel and the vision of Daniel is being brought into fulfillment through these things that are happening right now. He's here to conquer the beast. And how does he conquer the beast? In Daniel chapter 7, the Son of Man gets trampled on by the beast and the beast gets destroyed and the human one gets exalted. Our Lord Jesus Christ took this title Son of Man for himself. He took this as a roadmap for his ministry. And he was called, or what he was called to do from the story here, our Lord Jesus Christ says to the high priest, the moment that you think you conquer me is the moment actually that I conquer you. The moment that you give in to your instincts of self-preservation at the expense of a life of another human being is the moment that I've gained victory over you, the moment that you've become a beast. Our Lord Jesus Christ is going to conquer the beast by letting the beast conquer him because there's something interesting about the beasts. And we see this in all the chapters in, in the book of Daniel. Very interesting about the beast. What is the beast's power? What can it do? What can it do to people? Kill them. But that's all it can do. That's all it can do. Do you remember when Daniel's friends, the three youth, said, you can kill us. You can kill us or don't kill us, it's okay. You have power over maybe my life, but that's it. There's a limit to your power. Your ability to kill me cannot separate me from the love and the covenant commitment that God has made with me and I have made with God. So our Lord Jesus Christ goes to his death with the confidence that his death is actually the way of overcoming the beast. That's how our Lord Jesus Christ read and understood Daniel chapter 7. And it's a way of thinking about the whole of human history. And so yes, we have nations and countries that can be sort of like this beast. There was mega beasts of his day and the Roman Empire you can think of as a beast. And it was also the, 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 the high priest was a beast. And human history since our Lord Jesus Christ had provided, has provided us with a whole bunch of people and nations that act as beasts. And if I'm really honest with myself, I have a beast also within me. I have a beast also within me. So for human history to become what God called it to be is to make this beast die. To make this beast die. It has to. And that's what our Lord Jesus Christ sees himself doing as he dies on the cross on behalf of the people for the beast. So the beasts can be transformed by the love of God to become truly human. So definitely this is a strange dream. 
But if you're honest with yourself, you know exactly what this is talking about. We're talking about these moments when you and I give in to our own beastly desires, the impulses inside of us. Whether it be for appetite or physical hunger, whether it be for desires, envy, jealousy, sexual desires, these beastly impulses. And it's incredibly destructive. And if we're honest with ourselves, we know that we are made for more than this. Because a mature human being who truly reflects the image of God does not have to win at the expense of others. A mature human being who is full of God's Holy Spirit is a human being who can control his or her impulses, live for the benefit of other people. But sometimes we don't actually do that. Or we do it imperfectly. So our Lord Jesus Christ comes as the Son of Man, the human one, to be for us what we could never be for ourselves. And He becomes what we are so that we can become what He is. So you can look at this, this chapter and maybe you look at it and say it's a strange dream, it's a weird dream. But I encourage you to, to look and read this again and think about it and ask the Holy Spirit to illuminate inside me the times where I let into my beastly impulses. And what are the beastly impulses in my life that still remain? And what's it going to take through love and through faithfulness and through repentance and through my relationship with Christ for me to kill off this beast so that I become truly human, that I can be what my God intended for me to be. And glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.